Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Ben Fistra, welcome to Mentor, mate. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No, I've got to first have to ask you, the name Zella. I yep. mean, this is the business, this is the fintech. Is it going to do with Zealous or something? What's the deal? <laughs> Definitely not happy to say that. I mean, you're in financial services or have been yep. a lot, so you'd know that particularly today there's so many fintechs around and financial services organisations. You To find a unique name is almost impossible. But for me, I didn't want it to be literal, like, you know, pay this, bank that, whatever. I want to be something a little bit that could grow over time and not be pigeonholed into something. And I also wanted to represent who we cared most about, which is our end customers. And so they are merchants, businesses. In the US, they're called sellers. So it was merely a play on words, taking seller, making sure that they're at the front and center of our name and just doing a little tweak. So it was a bit unique, but that's it. I'd love a better story, but that's it. Well, that's not a bad story. It's a good name because it's easy to spell. It is. Um, it is. It's sort of easy to remember. It's quite a simple name and it's got a Z in it. That always helps. <laughs> it does. Why did you put Z instead of S? Uh, again, didn't want to be literal. And if everyone was just like calling yourself a uh, we're called business or merchant or seller. And so even if, if, if when we go to the US, that's a very common term. So, yeah, just something a little bit different um, and, yeah, just not literal. So. You, so you're one of the co-founders? Yes. So who of, are your co-founders? So one of four. So Dave, Alfred, Dom and myself, um, we're split quite evenly. So we've got two technically-minded people, so Dave and Alfred, who are CTOs in their own right. We don't tend to use those terms too much. But they've built businesses, they've built payments businesses, banking businesses, what have you. So they're very, very au fait with that space, uh, which you need when you're building effectively a bank from scratch. Uh, another side is Dom and myself and uh, Dom worked with me at Square and has been in financial services and payments for a very long time. So you know, combined we were able to sort of dissipate the different roles and make sure we had clear delineation of roles. So, so do you remember the day that this all first came to um, or became an idea? Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm a bit of a tragic entrepreneur, so I constantly do this stuff. But uh, yeah, I had a bit of time on the proverbial bench after leaving Square. Uh, and that's not good for someone like me. I thought six months uh, with golden handcuffs would be great. I could, you know, go on holidays and relax and turns out all your mates have to work. So you have to, you can't do that stuff. So I sat around thinking about it and and for me, it was basically the idea was pretty clear. I wanted to stay in payments. Business banking was completely broken. Wanted to try out hand at that. Um, and yeah, it was just an iterative process before that came about. And then, yeah, just reaching out, making sure, because like, if you're building a bank from scratch or what will be a bank from scratch, you can't do it lightly. And I certainly can't do it myself. So I certainly remember you know, chipping away at it and making sure that I get the right people around me. Uh, and then when the idea started to form, uh, yeah, we just started just one step in front of the other and got it going. 
you and your three mates sort of sitting around having a beer, you know, someone threw out the idea one day. I mean, you're on, you're on, uh, let's call it uh, paid gardening leave. You, yep. you, you, obviously, you left Square and, um, and they pay you to do nothing, basically keep you out of the marketplace. It doesn't stop your brain from working. Yep. Um, how do you approach somebody and who do you approach? Yeah, uh, the good thing about the chance I got at Square, which is I was the first person to launch it in Australia, so I was by myself building up from one and I had a pretty rocky road to get going and then eventually really accelerated to be a great brand in market. So I knew a lot about putting a team together and what you needed to do that. So that the, the missing bit was building the infrastructure that was came from the US, but everything else from a onboarding, a support, um, risk and compliance, all that sort of stuff had to be built, product, uh, branding, stuff like that. Um, so I knew a lot about that and made a lot of mistakes and a lot of good things, but it was really successful what we'd done in, in, with Square. So coming out of that, I loved the space. I was addicted to the change that you could see in payments. I knew the Australian banking landscape lacked a lot of innovation, so I needed more there. And I thought, well, I'm reasonably well-placed to give this a crack. Uh, I've got to make sure I have the right people around me. And obviously not building infrastructure myself, I needed as much firepower on the bench in terms of uh, technical capabilities. So that was an easy call to try to find two people. Dave I'd crossed paths with many years ago. Alfred I found via a friend and Dom I'd work with as well. So I knew the nucleus would work well together. Um, my first experience with Square when, well, I think it was in 2017, um, I was in Paddington Markets. And the Prime Minister or the Treasurer at the time, was Scott Morrison, asked me to chair a digital a digital payment inquiry or a digital digitization of Australian businesses or Australian small businesses inquiry. And I chaired and I had a you know a task force. It was a task force, and um, and I, but which I didn't realise at the time, the government was hell bent on making sure there was no cash in existence in the world. Um, in yep. Australia, our world, Australia, yep. and that everything was on digital because they could get rid of the cash system and uh, track every payment. And so I was at Paddington Markets and uh, I'd only literally just been appointed in this role and uh, I walked into the Paddington Markets and a dude had a telephone with, yep. a, with a square um, the device yep. stuck in the bottom of it Yep. and uh, I was about to pay in cash and he said, I don't take cash yep. and I nearly fell over. And Your job uh, was done already. You didn't have to do anything. Now, there's a good example yep. of how yep. you can digitise small businesses and how it's actually better because you can just tap. Yep. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd actually only – I was going to buy something for somebody and I'd actually gone down to the ANZ Bank and which there was an ATM there and I took some money out um, in order to buy it because I thought I'd have to pay cash. Yep. And uh, which is interesting, there's no ATM and there's no ANZ Bank in that particular strip anymore. And mainly because someone like you, who introduced Square in Australia, you've actually killed off the ATM system, <laughs> and um, and the and the poor buggers in the markets probably all got the Square device or some sort of device sitting in the bottom of their phone. Um, was it around that time that you were involved with Square? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah launched in, in I started in 2014, but launched effectively the payments in 2016. So just before your experience. So you're probably one of the early adopters there, which is good to see. Um, I was actually part of that work you were doing. I was in one get together with, I can't remember the politician, but he comes from a famous New South Wales public. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, um, yeah, yeah. The publicans now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was was one of my, um, well, he was, he was the um, um, uh, minister which sat under the Treasury, correct, yep. responsible for the task force. Yep. 
So I was standing in the back of the room at one of the events there when we brought together to try to talk about this stuff. Uh, I remember that event. Uh, and it, it felt it felt a little bit like the, the group together was obviously full of bankers and what yeah, have yeah, you, and yeah. I felt a little bit. Bankers and lawyers. Standing at the back with a yeah. T-shirt on, not quite right. But, um, uh, yeah, that was pretty much the start of it, and, and, and you're right. But that stuff, that move from a ca- cash economy through to a cashless economy has been really fast. Oh, especially around COVID. COVID was huge. Yeah. And, and I've been in payments innovation for years. Nothing would have led me to believe that it would have accelerated to this point because of a global pandemic. Like bizarre, but um, yeah, I'm glad that it has. I love the space. I think the efficiencies you get as a business owner by removing cash and just making sure you don't have to handle cash is fantastic. So, um, I've been a big proponent of that for a long time. Um, but that was about the start, 2016. Yeah. I don't remember it quite well. It's funny you should say that about cash because what's interesting is the election, the state election just recently in New South Wales has run off the back of um, cashless poker machine cards. And I think the point you just made is very important. Um, and it certainly pointed it wasn't lost on me. The If you're a, running a, a footy club which uses poker machines for revenue or if you're RSL, whatever the case may be, the amount of cash you collect, the cost of managing that cash yep. is mental. Yep. So um, I, I saw some uh, data the other day that clubs in general – who don't ca- collect anywhere near the cash you used to collect, but in general are paying up to seven hundred fifty grand a year, just in um, payments to the companies who come and pick up the cl- ca- cash, uh, collect yep. the cash that yep. you've that you've collected during the day, and take it to the bank for you. And the saving for these clubs is huge, um, and it's all about efficiencies. Yep. I mean, a lot of people are blowing up about you know not not having that to use legal tender anymore like a normal legal tender that's you know paying cash payments but nonetheless there is a lot of efficiencies to be gained what did you pick up this obviously you went through that that period with square but what why did you think that zella being a fintech should jump into this space and take advantage of the speed at which the changes were occurring. I mean, was it something you were watching? Were you like observing these changes? Because you, you I don't know if you, did you tell me what period was it? What, what was it that you were actually on gardening leave? Yeah, it was at the mid to end of 2019. But my first foray into payments innovation was many, many years before that. So um, I was trying to find my niche in the world and struggling, to be honest, for many, many years. Um, and then ended up thinking it'd be a good idea to work at NAB. Because I thought, you know, blue chips on your CV when you're young, I thought that'd be a good idea. Joined there and thought, no, nah, this is a disaster. <laughs> what have I done? But I found one thing that I liked. Uh, so I was working in part of the retail banks, uh, for the head of the retail banks department, wherever he got innovation partnerships, whatever, coming across his desk. Won't name who he was, but he wasn't very innovative, right? But the one thing that I found there was putting a microprocessor on a bit of plastic, which is called EMV or chip card technology. It's obviously about 2007, I think. Um, And for some reason, I love that. I love the prospect that eventually not only it could be more secure, but you could eventually do this thing called contactless, which we know now is tap and go or contactless down the track. And then eventually you could potentially tap your phone onto the devices. So this sort of roadmap, which was sort of white papered by a few people around the world, I thought was fascinating. So I went up to the executives at NAB and said, hey, we should be the first. We should do contactless cards straight away. We should lead the market. They said, no, thank you. Get back in line. Um, I said, what if I raise the money to do it? They didn't actually know what that meant, but said, sure, go for it. Uh, And so I came up with the idea of actually putting together one of the world's first mobile payments pilots. So using your phone to tap instead of cards. Brought in Telstra, brought in Visa and said, we're going to put ourselves on the map here. We're going to be the first in the world to do it. Uh, Ended up raising a few million dollars for that and pulled off that pilot. So it was way ahead of its time in terms of being ready to be deployed. 
But as a proof of concept, it showed you can use phones to do transactions. The remaining money and the remaining uh, inertia that was in the bank started to deploy contactless cards. And when a bank starts doing something, they can't stop. Yeah. So they started deploying it and they went really fast and then sort of contactless, a few people around the industry also jumped into this contactless space. A couple of banks got in and then they started going really fast. As we've seen, Australia is one of the leaders, leading payments um, uh, contactless markets in the world. So I'd been in that market for a very long time. I loved it. I love the challenge of it being able to change this stuff, like how you wake up and then go, let's go convince a bank to just change everything they do. But I love the fact that you and I and everyone in society transacts one way or another, some more than others, obviously. But it's an integral part of society. And the, co- the the prospect of changing that, like not just doing a little bit of adding to it or working in the space, completely changing how that happens, I was fascinated by. So uh, being a sucker for punishment, I've always been in payment innovation. So it was it was that. It was working then at Visa to deploy PayWave more and more, starting my own business after that, going to Square, coming out the back of that, and then just finally saying, All right, enough putting my heart and soul into US companies, enough putting my heart and soul into big corporates. I'm going to do this myself, proverbial myself, with co-founders and then just getting into it, just giving a red hot crack. So, yeah. so I think you just explain what you mean by payment systems because you use it as a term of art. Um, payment systems, as I, maybe I have a crack at it first, is basically how, I'm, how I might pay a merchant for something that the merchant's going to sell me. Yep, and a merchant gets paid, that two-way exchange. Yep. yep, okay, and the merchant gets paid by the bank. Or, or with by, electronic or, payments, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah, yes, great, electronically. So that that's what you mean by payment systems. Yes. So Australia's got quite a few payment systems entrepreneurs we have had over the past yep. few years. Just sort of take me through why is that the case? Why are we so innovative? What's going uh, on out there? There's a few things. I think you'd probably agree that just being the culture we are, um, we're incredibly entrepreneurial society, not just in payments or in tech, but everything. I mean, you go to any town, there are small business owners everywhere per capita are extremely entrepreneurial. So that's a big part of it. The second part of it is payments always had to be changed. I hate the word disrupted, but it had to be disrupted and changed. Um, so those two, those two factors were huge. And the fourth part was that like many big sectors in Australia, it was so tightly held by the four big banks. And whenever something is so tightly held, it generally becomes quite generic. It doesn't innovate much. There's no need to disrupt yourself. It's very static. So I think the combination of those three things led to a being a real fertile fintech space, which has proven to be the case and a lot is happening at the moment. So tell me about Zeller then. So what does Zeller do in relation to innovation around the payment system? What are you guys doing at Zeller? Yep. So during that time off, it was like, well, I'm going to stay in this lane. I'm not going to go change careers entirely. I've got a bit of experience. So I want to do something good and I want to do something big and challenging. So um, having a look at that, when you looked around the world, what's happening in business banking, there are a lot of different, and, and they shouldn't be called niches, but a lot of different niches and opportunities popping up and doing really well globally. So lending, credit cards, expense management, invoices, uh, debit cards, you know, but lots of these companies were making formidable footsteps in their respective sectors. But it wasn't for me the core of what businesses need. They might plug it onto their business banking or they might use it in co- in conjunction with something, but it wasn't exactly what every business needs. So that that, that question remained and the answer, what, what we thought was to say, well, everyone needs electronic payments. Cash disappearing, as we've talked about, you need to accept um, electronic payments, but can we do it faster? Can we do it better? Can we do it cheaper? Can we bring innovation to it? Still at that point, despite what Square was doing, it was still a number being routed around an ecosystem. There wasn't much innovation happening there. So could we do that? 
well, we've built businesses in this space. We think we're pretty well placed to give it a crack, that part of it. But then if, if we did build that, we'd, our merchants would still need to go to a bank to get a bank account to get the money. So we thought, well, can we get a transaction account and then put that in? So they don't have to go and line up for a second one, and, you know, fill out a form, wait six weeks, get interrogated whether they're worthy of a bank account. Can we put that in there? So there's two parts of it. That's money in, money held. They still had to get it out. All business, like two-thirds of businesses fail with cash flow. How can they get it in, hold it, and get it out quickly? That's where the third part of it came in. So the, the MasterCard business transaction account, the, now known as the debit card, and then obviously the ability to bank and transfer as well. So those three things came together. So that was the idea. Now, that seems like a somewhat obvious idea of what could happen, but that's huge. That's you're effectively building somewhat of a bank from the ground up. So an issuing and acquiring bank, two sides of a bank. So yeah, at the very start, we we're like, well, we wanted something hairy. We wanted something hard. How about we give it a red hot crack? And yeah, being the four that we were, and I guess the timing of meeting the right VCs who got behind us, we just had that spark to go and then sort of never look back. Yeah, but when you Ben, when you go under the VCs, and, yep. you know, you had the right, you had all the right names there in terms of your team and right experience, right background, probably the timing is right as well because digitization of payment systems, you know, was a thing. Yep. You know, Square was doing really well, really good things. How do you find these backers? You know, I'm not talking about your team but the people put the, the money up, you know, the people take the dollar risk. Yep. How do you find those dudes? Uh, this is the part where I was a bit naive here. So I, I'd met Paul Bassett from SquarePeg um, before, but, you but know. SquarePeg being a, a, a VC? Yeah, one capital of the, arguably the best VC in Australia. Um, so I'd met him, but I had no no idea how do you go and pitch to a VC, anything like that. So I, I earned a lot of experience around the space, but no experience in it. So I think there was a massive element of naivety for me, which actually boded well for myself. So, um, yeah, I was just talking to people about this potential idea and I kept saying, I want to do it. And everyone said, just do it. And I kept explaining why it was so hard to do. I said, well, it's just stupid because it's so big. You got to do this. It'll cost millions, cost hundreds. You need hundreds of people to do it. You're going to get regulated eventually. So I had all the reasons why not to do it. But the one big sticking block was to say, well, you need material capital. You cannot just do a little dinky little app or an MVP and then see how it goes. You're taking on massive banking institutions and big US tech companies. So we need money. I naively thought, listen, I've saved a little bit of money. How about we throw that in, build a prototype? A couple of million. No, definitely not that. Uh, might have been a different story if I had that. Probably wouldn't have done it in the first place. So uh, had a few hundred thousand dollars uh, away, obviously, as everyone does, trying to save later in their life. I thought, let's throw this in. Let's see what we can do. Uh, Dom co-founder threw his in as well. And we thought we'll build this prototype and then we'll think about funding. Um, but I spoke to uh, Mike Starkey, who's one of the co-founders of Athena Home Loans. Great guy, very nice. Uh, and he basically said, oh, I was pretty stupid to do that. Why don't you go and speak to some of his VCs? And I said, well, I don't want to go for that path yet, but I'll go chat to them. Why didn't you want to go? Because you're worried you're going to take much, too much equity away from you? Uh, there was an element of that. I hadn't really formulated the idea in my head. I wanted to see it. I wanted to see something tangible. I was thinking you have to show them something. Did you have the architecture down no. it? No. 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 Very, very little done. All we had was, I guess, blue chip pedigree and doing this type of stuff. Yeah. So we knew how it should be built, but building it was a different story. But, so, but it wasn't reduced to paper either. So you, you hadn't at that stage actually – um, not only did you not have a product to show them it, how Nothing. it worked, but you yep. didn't even you didn't even have it sort of mapped out properly. No, no, no presentation deck, no yep. business case, yep. nothing. Right. But I knew 
and with the rest of the team, we knew how to do it. We knew yep. the economics of it. We knew the partners we'd have to do. We knew how you make money. How do you build a business that's generating revenue from the start, not at the end, or try to get there? How do you how do you take on incumbents? How do you, we all knew all that stuff, but we hadn't built out a you know snazzy pitch or anything. So, yeah, I literally went into Squarepeg office uh, and sat there with Paul. Um, Paul Bassett from Seek Fame. Yes, Seek yep. Fame. So, you know, a, a business builder in his own right. Yep. So so for me, that's a massive difference. Yep. When you're talking to a VC or anyone investing their capital, if they're just looking at it from an investment perspective, that's one part. But if they've built a business, because you're going to be with them for a long time. Yeah. So I want to know they've built businesses. I want them to know it's on a straight line. So sitting with Paul straight away, he was obviously looking for different things that I didn't know what he's looking for, but in terms of his investment. But yeah, as I retell the story, and I might be getting a little bit rosy on this one, I've been there for about three years now, but I remember distinctly the body language. He wasn't being rude, but he was sitting back at the start. And as we talked, and I was, wasn't was saying this is the how I'm going to change the world, I had no sort of catch cries, no anything like that. I was like, this is what I want to do. This is why I think I'm well-placed to do it. This is what we need to get it done. I just noticed him leaning in. Like he was just leaning more and more in until his elbows were on his knees and sort of leaning in. And I thought, he gets what we want to do. He kind of understands it. So um, anyone that's been in front of a VC, looking back, that's a generally a good sign that they're leaning in literally. Uh, and, yeah, 10 days later we had a term sheet. And, and so the same thing with Apex Capital with Alex Vinica. Um, intro via uh, Mike Starkey again. So the second one went, that went quite well. I might go and have a chat to someone else. Um, yeah, chatted to the two of them. Same thing. They business builders, they get it. Um, and they were very quick to move to say, we'll back you. So we were we were very lucky, put it that way. The fact that we could get in that door, uh, so I could get in the door, I could sit there, I could have these chats. I didn't feel the pressure because I wasn't, or oh, I need money or we're going to close. The combination of that was pretty special. So looking back, that was probably why it worked so effectively. How much did you raise, can you say? Yeah, 6.3. So so your first round was 6.3? Yep. You've raised since then, haven't you? Yeah, 180 million. Altogether, 180, but at the 6.3, did you go back to the same shareholders to raise more? Yeah, so the thing I love about our shareholders, we've kept a very tight cap table so we could actually make sure they come with the journey and they understand what we're doing, if it's good or bad along the way easier to manage a tight tap cap table as well. But the sign of their faith in us, every time we raised again, they always took pro rider and asked for more. Right. So for us, that was like, you know, we, we were confident in what we we're doing, but that was a great sign of validation that I was saying, we really like what you're doing now. And each step you said you'd get to as a business, you're getting to and you're exceeding and you're moving forward. So yeah, having that sort of validation was great. So they've always reinvested with an introduction of one additional investor in each round. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's important to learn how to manage shareholders. Yep, it's really definitely. important to manage shareholders. And it's actually a big skill. Um, it's and a lot of people who are in business who are good at this, who are well skilled at the business and quite good, don't really know that skill, shareholder management. Yep. There's a fine line between telling them too much and not enough. There's a fine line between uh, not telling th- things to people on t- at the right time. Timing is really important. Definitely. Timeliness. Um, how do you manage, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but how do you how do you go? What what things have you learned about managing shareholders? I think managing shareholders is similar to a lot of personal relationships you have anyway. And the number one thing is just it's a cliche, but it's being transparent. So if you go into a shareholder management process and only give them rosy stuff, you're screwed when things turn bad because they'll get shocked, they'll get surprised, they'll be, what's happening, what about this great stuff you told me about? So all the way through, there's always been transparency. And that was the same in the very first round. I was very upfront with what what some of the possible reasons we would fail. And it was like, we haven't built the infrastructure. The, the incumbents are massive. Like they've got a pricing discrepancy over us. You know, we're going to take a year plus to build this stuff. But you don't want to talk them out of it. Totally. It's the balance of both. So yeah, yeah I, I think that's I don't know why, but I got, I guess, I guess that that balance right of saying this is what we're doing. But I'll be upfront with you, these are the challenges, move through that. And that all the way through has continued. So every month we send monthly updates and there are the challenges highlighted. We we call them out. We say this is what we're overcoming, this is what we're facing, this is what we're seeing. So it's a combination of being transparent and making sure you're very, very upfront with that. Um, but on the reverse side, we're not building a business for investors. We're building a business for the reasons that we all want to do it and why the investors want us to do it is to build a multi-generational, long-term, profitable business. So we want to really make sure we stick to that. I'm not going to just labour over these uh, monthly reports every month. It's a reflection of the business. So as a CEO, I've got to focus on building this business successfully. The update should reflect that. So a big part of that. Um, The other part of it is that the team that we built, like we don't get caught probably a little bit older than the average entrepreneur. Maybe you are around the average entrepreneur, but um, we don't get caught in the hubris of stuff. We're not spending money on, you know, lavish stuff when we got this fund. Every dollar was invested back in the business. When we were in the good times of what we were all talking about, tech good times the last two years, we were in survival mode. That's the way we approached it. So I think when we were with our investors, we always had that same consistency to say, yeah, it's good, but there's more to done. Yeah, we got to this milestone, but we don't care about that now. We're looking at the next one. I think just being that way, they want to see that hunger and that drive, and and that certainly helps. So, and I guess, are there times when you get completely exhausted and you think to yourself, I, I know what they want. They're looking for that theatre, um, notwithstanding the fact that you might be completely, um, you know, s- sort of dead, like dead in the water. Like, I'm mean, in terms of physical. Yep. Ability, you're, you're just oh my god, I'm done. I need a break or something, and you know you're not going to get a break. How do you maintain that theatre? Like what? Like 
do you rely on your other three partners and they say to you, hey, listen, mate, you have to, oh, let me take over from here or, or do you allocate one person to talk to investors or how does that work? Yeah, I do most of it myself. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, uh, to be honest, we're, we're very good at delineating our roles and I want the team focused on what they have to do, which is building a business. You know, in, in, in keeping investors inside, on side, as important as that is, that's a byproduct of us being successful. So if they do their job and I do my job, those updates to investors will be great. They'll be positive. But if we don't, which is the primary thing we should be doing, they'll be very hard and my job will be hard. But no, I don't shirk responsibility from that. If I have to give a hard message, that's my job. I'm a CEO. So. And during the COVID period, um, it was quite generous too, I guess. Yep. Yep. So explain how what was the effect of COVID for you guys? I'm not talking about you know three days on, two days off, all that sort of stuff. Work from home. I don't mean that. But I'm, I mean in terms of how were you able to fast forward fast forward your tech? Um, look, at how did demand for your tech change, etc. Yep. No two days off as well, by the way. Um, uh-huh. We certainly work uh, our full quota. Um, I you, mean, I mean from coming into the office three days, two days at home, three days. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot of debate in that space alone, but um, 100%. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think um, uh, for us, it was a really weird time. So if you look at what our primary first part of our business was, it's a face-to-face electronic payment solution combined with business banking. The worst time you could launch this business in the middle of a global pandemic that in this country had the tightest, most severe economic restrictions on businesses. And we were in you Melbourne. Came from. We're yeah. in Melbourne. So yeah. we literally could not leave our house. The business owners could not open their shops or whatever. So we launched into the middle of that. So as you know, when you're starting a business, you don't get to pick your timing. Sometimes you can, but often you just got to do this thing. It's got to go. So we launched right into that. Um, so technically, worst time ever to launch. But what it did, it made it gave us that healthy sense of sort of paranoia and hard work to go, wow, we're going to hit some headwinds here. This is not good, but let's just get the basics right. Let's launch well. And when this thing abates, we should be able to accelerate. That was a big part of what we did. And we launched into that. And, you know, because of many, many different factors coming into it, we just hit the ground running straight away. So within the first month, 1,500 businesses signed up. It was just a way straight off to the races from the start, which was great. But How did you find the businesses though? Uh, so a lot of work, which growing businesses like I did with Square, was brought into into Zella. Like, how do we do that? How do we hit the ground running? You've got to be known. You've got to be seen. You can't be spending all your money on marketing. Otherwise, you're screwed. You're going to run out of money pretty quickly. So uh, there's two factors to it. We got channel really, really effectively right. So um, I brought in the best people that I'd worked in that knew how to market and market digitally. Like this is something we've got to get in, in front of the eyeballs of businesses owners who aren't looking for us. They aren't always just on Google. They, they, they might run a fruit shop or they might run a surfboard hire company. They're looking at different places. So how do we get in front of them? So the marketing and the growth side was absolutely crucial. The other part we did well was to get in partnership with Officeworks. So from the very start of our business, you go into Officeworks as a business owner and you could buy our solution, which is the terminal account and the card built into one for $299. So even if we didn't market to them, we didn't get their eyeballs in terms of marketing towards them, everyone goes to Officeworks if you're a business owner. So to get that non-too-technical term, the stumble across effect, them just to stumble across it, just to see it, to get that awareness, I think those two combinations helped us start effectively. How did you get into Officeworks? Just chat to them. Yeah. And ha- had a good pitch, I guess, and told them what we're trying to do. And but how- who do you ring up? Like, you- I knew some of the buyers there. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So, so you knew somebody. Yep. But that's, yep. that's pulling levers. That works. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean- the benefit of having a few more years of being in, in, in business, you get 
one thing, which is your network. And so, yeah, I, I knew one or two people in there had a chat, but there's no guarantee. This is an amazing business. They, they, they got people pitching to them all the time. So we had to be spot on. We had to know exactly what we're doing. We exactly know the margin they're looking for them, what drives their growth, all that sort of thing. But for us, it was critical because businesses, business banks, obviously are closing at the moment, branch networks closing, everything's being reduced. Business owners are thriving and they want to get this solution. They need a footprint. So whilst we ship them to people for free, the ability for them just to go into an Officeworks is critical. So I think what Officeworks liked was that we were there to support businesses and get help them get back on their feet during and post-COVID, and they liked that. That was a good message for them. So Let's go through your, your suite of products now. Where are you at? Yeah, so we started with that literally a bundled product. You get the, the terminal, the account, and the card built in. So you effectively, you could just start using Zella straight away. You've got everything to run your business. So really effective bundle of products. And so like I'm, for example, if I could just yeah, give sure. an ex- you can help me with an example. Um, I'm a, 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 I don't know, Jim's mowing franchise and I want yep. to get paid. I don't want to be sending invoices and I don't, I don't want to collect cash. So I could have this, I could travel with this. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you can sign up like you go to uh, our website, myzella.com. You sign up within five minutes. Um, you have the account ready to go so you can accept money. And then you got the card so you can spend your money when you get it. And then obviously, as you transact with your customers, you take the payments via the terminal. So you, you guys send the terminal out to me. Yep. And uh, it's in the back of my car, yep. my truck or whatever it is. And then I go mow your lawn. Instead of having to send you an invoice, I just uh, I just bill you there and, then you, and I get your credit card details. I, I get your credit card, I should say. Well, you pay me the credit cards there and then. Yep. And then I'm paid straight up. Yep. Effectively. That's exactly yeah. how it works. And, and yeah. so where, where have you – okay, so that's that's – understand that product. What are the products are you giving out there to business owners? Yeah, so the main sort of if you look at the the world, I think in Australia before Zella, it was you'd go get a bank account from a traditional bank. You might get an invoicing system from someone, an yeah. accounting service from someone. You get payments from someone else. You got this massively bifurcated and mixed, cobbled together solution. So what we want to do is bring it all together. So we talk about becoming a modern business bank, but we don't believe in the term bank because it's a little bit outdated at the moment. But something like that. Um, but we want to be able to offer all those modern solutions any business might want to use to accept payments and to get paid and to run their business more effectively. So those three products were the start. We've since launched invoices. So whether you're on zero invoices, you can pay via Zella. We have Zella invoices. So you've got your own solution there, which is a digital service. So you can make sure you can take away the stress of chasing customers to get paid. That all comes back into it. We've also launched standalone transaction accounts. So if you're an online seller, you don't care about face-to-face FPOS, you, just, you need a transaction account, you need a, a card or an invoicing solution, you can do that now. So anyone can sign up to Zeller and get going. And the idea is to constantly add more solutions to that. So expense management, you know, eventually lending, going to these sort of spaces. So you should be able to get everything that you want from Zeller or the partners that we choose to partner with. So wh- where does Zeller one end up? Uh, there's probably two answers to that. And I think probably uh, on one hand, uh, it's a personal thing of mine that I've worked long enough at businesses where when I've worked there a little while and looking back, and Square was a good example, right? Uh, and you look back and you go, whoa, what that business launched as is nothing like what it is today. And for me, that's, I'm a pig in proverbial mud when you talk about that. So if I know where Zeller's going to end up in 10 years, I don't want to work at Zeller. Like, I, I honestly don't. 
we have absolute microscopic accuracy of what we're doing in the next 12 to 24 months. But beyond that, let's keep it open. This space is changing fast. It's innovating fast. We're winning on some solutions. We need to work on others. So making sure we constantly keep ourselves open to change is critical. Uh, so hopefully, I don't know. Hopefully, like hopefully, I'll look back and go, I have no idea how we got here, but what a business we've built. So that 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 keeps me happy. So, so okay, so let's let's address the the current situation out there. Some people call it a tech wreck, but I mean, at the moment, we have got all the big tech guys, the big guys, the massive guys, laying off stacks and stacks of people yep. here in Australia, everywhere everywhere around the world. Um, has any of that had an effect on you? Other than it means you might be able to find uh, some good tech people. <laughs> well, that's it is absolutely a thing. Like is the, that the outcome? Uh, it's one of them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. The inbounds we have is amazing, which is great because uh, we're always looking for talent. We're still hiring. Um, there's probably a few different factors there. I think um, obviously it's unprecedented time for tech, but it's also the inverse of the. But why un- is that? Why, tell me why is it unprecedented why? times for tech? Probably because we've never had such, or we've had a couple of obviously tech booms you know, over the last 20 years, but a period of such strong growth that came off the boil so quickly. And I mean, if you look over the last two years, every tech business was succeeding. Like everyone was yeah. working three days a week, less and less. They were paying whatever people wanted to get paid. Everyone was joining the tech industry. It was growing. So that's a lot of goodies coming from that. But that's not business. That's not normal. Like there's got to be some... There's got to be some failures as much as I hate that. There's got to be some difficulty. Not every good idea, not every idea is good. So the fact that it came off so quickly, and that's you know, a lot of different reasons. It's the macroeconomic conditions. It's the capital, uh, the, the the capital conditions and inflationary pressure coming through. So suddenly public companies were being viewed with a very critical lens, and that obviously went through to, to private companies to say, well, you should be acting like public companies, get, get better, manage better. But I think ultimately a lot of businesses in the tech space thought that the proverbial good times would last forever. Um, and if you're not running your business in a credibly slightly paranoid way to make sure you're always looking to be efficient, you're all every dollar matters in those good times. Unfortunately, when the bad times come, it hurts. Now that's not the case for everyone. There's obviously some businesses who literally are struggling now because of high inflation. There's some businesses are struggling because the growth that they saw through COVID they can't substantiate anymore. So a lot of different reasons, but. I think the tech industry, and myself included, everyone just has to say those last couple of years were pretty crazy and a lot of things got carried away from wages to hubris to whatever and now is this- Or growth. And growth as well. I have to be a good example. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like you're like, how can they keep growing at that rate? And, uh, and what happens if your customers, the people you lend money to, all of a sudden start to struggle a bit? Yep. And how good am I at uh, managing- Bad debts. Yep, and or, risk. I mean, how good yeah. are, and how, would you would you say that's? I mean, uh, mate, Anthony Ison's uh, and Molnar's uh, their their timing was just unbelievably yep. good. Spot on. Yep, just unbelievably good. Like, not even spot on. I mean, I like seriously, <laughs> like like nearly another day um, would have been would, wouldn't have been as good. Yeah, um, and uh, well, on the way in and the way out was tough. Totally. I mean, like so. my God, like who would have known? Did they know COVID was going to happen? I mean, have they been <laughs> hanging out in Wuhan or something? Um, but like because COVID was unbelievably good for them, but and then, then getting out. Like, but to be fair, they were a growth, they were a rocket ship before COVID hit. Yeah, totally. Like, but they, they, but COVID, they did well. But, but COVID but then sort of gave them another few boosts. Turbo charts, yeah. They just yeah. It went past the moon, mate. They yeah. just kept going. Yeah. And uh, it was pretty unbelievable. I mean, I I, I don't know Mona, but I know Anthony very well. He's a good dude. I'm, I'm happy for him. 
Yep. Happy for him. Um, but, but those those sort of um, crazy um, crazy periods, and there were quite a lot of other people who copied them, by the way, and who, who've been. I mean, by the way, I was an investor in quite a few of these things because every time <laughs> you know one of these one of these organisations went to the marketplace, everyone goes, "Shit, I missed out on after pay. I better buy some of that." Yep. And uh, I'm I'm lucky I got out of most of it pretty quickly. But um, uh, how much of that sort of um, sort of damage have you observed out there and has has there been any net effect on you guys as Zella? Uh, yeah, it, well, it's not over for starters. Um, Where do you think it's going to go then? I'm not a macroeconomist by any stretch. But, but give me a um, shot. Th- there's definitely more in this. There's definitely more in this because the, the thing is that ultimately what damages these situations hasn't happened yet. So consumers are generally still spending. Our employment levels are very positive. Do you find that weird? Do, do, I mean, do you think well, that is there something? Uh, look, do you think? I mean, for me, or not weird, irreconcilable. Can you can you reconcile? No, because the human nature is to not accept that there's been change. So how it's they, like when someone, if you bought a house for a million dollars, right, and the next day the agent says it's worth eight hundred thousand, you will not concede that. You will say no, it's worth a million. I hold on. Same thing. People know that the economy is tightening at the moment. But they're still, as humans, we don't want to change. We don't want, we still want to go to the restaurants we go to. We still want to buy the things we do. So in all these situations, unless it's a really, really abrupt jolt, um, like you're losing your job, people tend to keep going. So what we're seeing now is just that precipice where people are starting to be cautionary. They're starting to rethink their purchase, but they're not materially changing. So it'll go one of two ways. This is the top and we're in for a bit of a, rocky, a, a rough road um, ahead or or things will start to normalise a bit and that paranoia will ease and people will get back to the way they Sounds go. Sounds awfully scary. Um, it like, could be, it like could be but the, it could be good. I was at the airport on Monday morning and, I, I, no joke, I, I couldn't believe how busy it was. Yep. So I looked around the airport and I thought, well, I'll just do a quick survey, age, demographic type thing, you know. like uh, So literally half the people were under 30, that casual clothes on, they're obviously going to Gold Coast or going on holiday somewhere. The other half were over 50. There was no, very few people with suits on going from Sydney to Melbourne for, yeah, for yeah. work or Sydney, Queensland for work. By the way, most of those things in my organisation, now I make them get on a Zoom call. I don't even want to pay for yep. their fare. So there's very few business travellers that I could see, unless everybody travels casual for business these days. But there was clear delineation. There was a big absence of people from, say, 35 to 50. The typical people with a mortgage, a job, Mortgage, yep. maybe a kid or two, um, maybe together with somebody or not together, but none of us have a mortgage. There was an absence of those people, but these people on the edges, they're still spending like drunken sailors. Definitely, are they doing all this on credit? I mean, I mean, I just love to know. I'm just slightly off the topic, but I'd love yeah. to know your your your. your well, I definitely think there's an element of you can see in the stats, credit card usage is coming back. It's certainly not to problematic levels. It's just slightly higher than it was. Um, but I think back to that, people just don't want to change. And, and But we're still employed as an economy. Like we're, yeah. we're still quite strong. Historically, Australia's- Until I'm not employed. Then you know. Then you know. And this is what's happened because tech is kind of weirdly, um, or maybe not so weirdly, but being the one hit the hardest at the moment. Like the unemployment going through and the and the retrenchments happening are huge, like material change. The good news in in Australia, there is still an appetite for tech workers, so a lot of those will get sort of gobbled back up. So and when all the Facebook people get knocked off, get, get yep. retrenched or redundant, made redundant, uh, are, there, are you saying to me that there are people going out to pick them up? 
Yeah, definitely. There's still people hiring. It's nowhere near what happened in the last few years. I think there's a big realisation that salaries have been normalised now. Like they're not going to pay whatever to hire anyone. You've got to be a little bit careful the way you hire it. Uh, but there's still an appetite for tech. But unfortunately, different types of tech have been impacted. So if you want to go sort of a blue chip organisation, which hasn't really started pulling back and working tech there, which I wouldn't deem as tech, but it is technology, um, you can still get employed. But no, it's definitely the, it's changed. Like the industry has absolutely changed. Um, one of the most common questions we have, which I never got through the whole growing 200 odd people uh, at Zella, what I get every interview now is tell us a little bit about, you know, Zella's position financially. Like no business. No, you mean employees ask? Yeah, employees are asking. So, which is good because you probably should know what you're getting in for before, into before you join. But yeah, we're getting that question a lot. So a lot of people have been burnt, like they had a go at tech and um, they've had to, you know, go for new jobs and maybe go back to more traditional companies, which is a bit sad, but you have to try it. Um, but there are people that just love tech and will always be in tech. So, uh, yeah, there's um, – no, I think people are still spending because they're still generally employed. It's still pretty strong. Uh, hopefully that continues, but it could change. That's an interesting thesis because, therefore, it probably follows that the only way to kill this kill, kill off this inflation that the uh, RBA is so hell-bent on doing um, is to increase unemployment to another number. Yeah. And, Unfortunately, uh, that is one of the – And they're not, yep. not going to ever admit it because that's not a cool thing to say. Yep. But that's obviously you have to hit people in the hip pocket to, to I, change their behaviour. I don't think there's any other way. I, like, I honestly don't. If if And I'm exactly the same. I'm assuming you are too. If you've got money in your pocket and you want to buy things, you'll buy them. The only time you will stop or rethink that purchase is if that is in question. If the source of your funds is in question, like when you start a new business, like when you get laid off, that's the only way you'll question it. So, yeah, that is the first sign that I guess inflation is going to come down is when employment comes into question. And what is this doing to liquidity in the capital markets, those markets, VC markets, or you're probably past VC now, but that those people who invest in people like you or maybe yeah. maybe let's say you had yourself, you know, back when you were going to see the, you know, the square peg guys, you know, like back a couple of years ago, the real VCs, um, what's happened to that marketplace in terms of capital and investment? Are they drying up a bit? Yeah, absolutely not. So there's actually truckloads of cash still sitting on the sides. Like if you look at the raise, the big firms have all raised massive amounts of money they have to deploy. So on one hand, it's- Explain that though, please. Uh, well, I guess, I don't know whether they were smart, they saw it coming or whether there was, I think it's probably more the latter where there was a lot of appetite for people to still put their capital to use. Because before inflation really hit, you know, it was hard to know where to put your capital to earn a good return. And tech historically, even over the longer term, has been very, very good asset to have. So uh, I think a lot of, they raised a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars across all each firm, billions of dollars um, that is sitting there. Yeah, so Blackbird, Airtree, you're talking about these. All of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They all, all raise them. a lot of dough, yep. which means they've got to invest it. they got to deploy it, yeah. yeah. Like it's that the business model doesn't work unless the assets well, get it's deployed. A it is a problem. It is a problem. Um, so the, the, the flip of it though is that when you're starting a business, actually now is a very good time. So, that, so the, the, the seed, pre-seed, maybe even into the A is still very, very healthy. The big change is the way they review these businesses, the lens they put on them, the metrics they look at. Because every single day there are learnings in the market. Okay, well, we, did, we had that wrong. Okay, that trend that we saw come from COVID is actually normalised. So those types of businesses, maybe not so much. Um, there's obviously been massive things in the you know, crypto space and what have you that's pulled back. So I think VCs like all of us are learning every day. And, and adjusting their investment thesis to new trends. But there's a willingness to invest still. There's plenty of capital in their pockets, so they're looking to deploy. But probably the other big thing that's changed is the rate of deployment. 
that sort of FOMO investing, that massive amount of get it out, deploy it within days, that's come back. But like with any investment and purchase, if there's a good business that's running well and growing well, the same thing will apply. The investors will want to get in because the metrics look good, the products look good, the people are right, all the proper things. But what about if if it's not a business, Ben? Like what about if it's a great idea with good cred in terms of the team, like you were when you first kicked it off? Is that possible? So someone comes up with a great health yep. tech or something along those lines, fintech, health tech. Um, health seems to be a big one at the moment. A, a really good health tech idea. Do you think that it's – well, you say there's money available. Yeah, I get that. Are you saying, though, that those investors are just a lot more discerning, take yep. their time and could probably impose a number of conditions on you that would be tougher than, say, the conditions you had on you? No, there definitely might be a bit of that. I think generally the big VC firms in Australia are pretty responsible. They're not, they don't look to capitalise on downturns and put these really onerous terms in. There would definitely be new terms in there. There's no doubt about it. I think just the way they look at it and their investment thesis has changed. But no, I think um, in those emerging trend areas we are talking about, there's never been better times. There's never been a better need for these types of businesses to grow, whether it's climate or med tech. So I think that definitely continues. Yeah, just a bit of the hubert and the hubris and the oxygen has just been taken out a little bit. But no, it's still a great time to build a business where the real struggle is as well as the later stage. If you're not growing into your valuations, if you're not responsible the way you're spending and the way you're growing, different story. But if you're r- running a responsible business that is very open and transparent the way you do it, you're ticking the boxes, you're growing ahead of schedule, there's still good things and people want to invest in those companies. So I'd like to think those markets are still pretty healthy. So how, how important has it been for uh, someone who's got one of these great ideas? Uh, how important was it for you, for example, to have three co-founders with you? Like just to say somebody's got a great idea, they're on their own, they're a, they're a med tech, um, but they haven't got three other partners Um would you would you say it's important in terms of getting funding from one of the uh, VCs for the VC to feel comfortable that you've got all the parts of your business covered with an expert who is a co-founder? Yep. Do, is that an important thing? Uh, it's critical. It's absolutely critical. And I think we're probably on the extreme end of it. Probably MedTech's a similar one. If you to go there with no medical experience, like mm-hmm. you're going to be a, you're going to be hard pressed to convince any VC to invest money. It's yeah, you're a marketing dude who's got a great idea, but you don't understand. You don't have a PhD or a doctor's degree in the particular aspect you're looking at. It might be hard to get the I wouldn't be doing it, no. Yeah. So I'd be finding the people to compliment you. The the funny thing is if you reverse the roles, this is kind of what I did at the start, and I had a look at the founding team I was putting forward, would I invest in that? Like have I got – I don't want to run a business we don't have what it takes to build it, right? So the the lens was on me straight away and before I even talked to investors. Do I have the people? We're building massive payments banking infrastructure. I can't do that by myself. I can't. So the more founding people I have around the table, the better. And I know a lot about the importance of finding the right people. So if you're if you're starting a new business and just ask yourself, do I have what it takes to build it myself? If there's big gaps like tech or the business side or the economics, whatever it is in your field, plug those gaps before you go talking to other people about money. And and that that part, having that right balance, I think founding team, this is obviously a phase of founding team. And then there's the broader team you bring on in the first few months of it. Those two stages are non-negotiables. You've got to get them spot on. You don't, there's no success happening. So. Yeah, so you're right. So, so in other words, if you're trying to, there's no point being a really good good at running a business, having a great idea, maybe coming out of banking, but not understanding the tech stack. Yep. And there's no point saying, oh, I'm going to employ that person. 
because investors probably don't feel quite as confident. They'd rather that you have a co-founder Definitely. who's going to sit on top of the tech stack, build, yep. and who's done it before, yep. who knows this stuff. Yep. That's, that's pretty good advice, I think, because um, that, that makes sense to me because they're the sorts of things where when markets are running a muck and um, investors or VCs will invest in anything because they've just got to get the money out of the door and, as you said, if, you know, if you're missing out on something, it's a different story. But now yeah. – this is where they're more discerning. Yep. This is where they say, well, you know what, if you had a, a co-founder who I, who I believe in, who can show me that they've they got the understanding around, let's, like the example just made, the, 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 invest, the uh, tech stack, I'd feel much more comfortable. Yep. It's about making the investors feel or the, the VCs feel comfortable. Yep. And you have to ask yourself those questions. What would I do? How would I put my hard earned? Yep. They're, they're, they're pretty important questions. And is, is, is that an effect of, do you think that's what we're going to see going forward for people with these great ideas? Do you think, is that a new sort of scenario now, a new structure for startups in the tech industry? It shouldn't be new. It should just be the basics, the bread and butter of this. Like this should be, do you have the team to build what you're claiming to build? But to your point, over the last few years, the hubris and the FOMO and what have you, and there were there were stories of many founders that got out there and just made it up as they went and, you know, fake it till you make it or whatever. And that's not, you know, that's a plausible way to go forward. Such shit. But if you want to ask someone for money, you can't do that. No, no, like, no you, totally. you, You've got to get it spot on. Just all they want to see is a decrease in the odds of this failing. Yeah. So how could this fail? Wrong people, infighting, not enough experience, no market demand, inability to execute, all the basics we know. They're just looking at that. And if they're not ticking boxes and co-founding teams is critical, absolutely critical. But not just people that have done it before. Like I don't know what your experience in this is, but when you're founding business, it is hard, right? And if you're in the trenches with people that you can't have an honest conversation with, a little bit of a disagreement, you don't know where the roles start and finish, there's all these basic stuff. If you don't have that right as well, and that maybe the investors don't see that part of it, but you got to ask yourself that question as well. Am I going to be go through some of the hardest times of my life in the next few years with these people? Will they be there with me? Will we turn on each other? Will we gel well? Will we complement each other? All these skills have to be uh, looked at and asked. Well, the big problem, of course, is um, seeking co-founders is you've got a co-founder has equity. Yep. And, and how do you stitch that up early days? So in other words, as you just said, um, someone might turn out to be a teller of the hunt and um, you don't get on with that particular individual yep. and you've got to buy them out. What do you say to them? What, do you have a document that says, look, in the event that uh, this doesn't work out, we have a bidding war, I bid you, you bid me. I mean, how do you do it? Yeah, we, we were very clear, particularly after the first stage about how the exit strategy and what would happen. But uh, in our in a situation, it's a bit different where you still had to earn that equity, even myself over time. Like it was there to be earned, but I didn't like automatically, I couldn't start the business on day two and go, see you later, guys, good luck, I've got my share of it. So I still have to earn it over time. So there's no free carry. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's, no, there's no, no potential for a free carry. Yeah, which is critical because yeah. in that situation of me just going one way or someone else going one way, you don't want to be held that way. Um, so it's a big part of that. But I, I've I've been in US tech companies and I've seen the value of skin in the game from everyone from the bottom to the top. And so that's a philosophy I still hold on to very tight. Do you mean money invested? No, no, sorry. Um, options, equity, yeah. everyone. I can't ask someone to say, hey, we've got a massive push happening this weekend. Please just put in a bit extra. Let's get it over the line. And they're like, yeah, I'm busy this weekend. I got whatever. It's like if they're owner of the business, that's a different story. Like you don't even have to ask that. They're like, let's get this done. Let's mark in. Let's go. Um, so yeah, big strong philosophy of everyone in the business having equity in it. Everyone, everyone. 
It's not just your co-founders, but no, no, everybody everyone. else. Everyone. There's no one in the business. That so, does so you've got to have um, you know programs whereby everybody you know, can is can earn in. Yep. As opposed to not, they're not putting money in, but they they're actually putting in sweat. Yep. Absolutely. And over time, that sweat gets rewarded. Yeah. I, to be honest, because it's not a day to like a nine to five job, like building a massive tech company. Like if you if if, if it is, yeah, you're just getting a paycheck and going home. Yeah. But we're asking people to like to bring their best work. Like, yeah, absolutely, this is your opportunity to help build an amazing business. Let's see what we can do together. Let's really help each other. Like, let's give – we're all starting this business together. And I just never – having that two sort of tails to people, like, oh, and you, if we do it all well, this cohort will Make benefit and you will all yeah. – just nothing. You'll get a tap on the shoulder. I, and I just don't believe in that, particularly the early stages. I think it's just right. Like, we're all in it, rolling together. Obviously, varying degrees, but um, it's just a great motivator for people to make sure that they've got skin in the game, so – well, um, as I understand it, you're, if you raised up to 190 million, and uh, I don't know how much you're giving away, but that tells me you probably built a unicorn here, probably up a billion dollar valuation. So, um, Ben Fistro, well done. Zella sounds like a bloody great investment. I wish I'd have been there day one with uh, with, with my mates out there um, who did invest in the early days, um, but um, I didn't get a tap on the shoulder. But as usual, but no dramas. Really nice to meet you. I'm glad to hear that um, Aussies are aren't waiting for the Americans to turn up and turn our place upside down and that you're doing it. Thanks, Ben. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistants, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.